Thank you, Richie. Thank you, Don, for leading us. All right. If you would take your Bibles again and let's turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, and we will be looking at verses 37 to 42 this morning. Luke chapter 6, verses 37 to 42, follow along as I, as I read. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. This is the word of the living God. Amen. Amen. In the movie, The Princess Bride, one of the main characters continues to use the word inconceivable. (laughs) And uh, as his plans continue to be thwarted, He says, inconceivable, until eventually one of the other characters says to him, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. (laughs) And uh, I think in a similar way, uh, we could say the same about this passage. Uh, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Or often in the King James, judge not, lest you be judged. And I like to say to people, you keep using that verse. I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> One time we should do a series uh, of messages and we'll call it straight out of context. <laughs> and, uh, and we'll just pick verses that are out of context verses and we'll preach them and put them in their context. So, but not now. Um, this would be though at the top of that list. It's likely one of the most well-known verses of the Bible, other than John 3.16, for people who don't read the Bible. (laughs) Uh, You know John 3.16 because of sports events, and it's there usually. Uh, Someone's holding up a sign. I actually had a friend who is a pastor now, and he was really into soccer, and he used to see the John 3.16 before he was a Christian, and he didn't even know it was a Bible verse. Uh, And he was just trying to figure out, like, what does that mean? You know, until eventually, much later, someone told him it was a Bible verse, and he looked it up, and he's like, what does that have to do with soccer? (laughs) That was his conclusion. (laughs) Um, But anyway, after that verse, you have this verse, and 
This verse is kind of like the Kevlar vest that people who don't like to be confronted in their sin wear. Or it's like kryptonite that they pull out when you're confronting them or uh, saying something that uh, goes against their lifestyle or their worldview. And so you start to say, hey, well, the Bible says, and you begin to explain the Bible's teaching on some issue or behavior or lifestyle, whatever, and they pull out the kryptonite and they say, judge not, lest you be judged. And they're hoping that you'll collapse and, you know, uh, in dust and ashes, I guess, and, um, and repent. Um, it's the one verse they know, but they don't know it because it's not what the passage is teaching. Ironically, the passage that we're going to look at is very much about evaluating (laughs) and considering uh, what is happening and not being blind to your own sins so that you can then help someone in their need. The focus of these verses, we might say, is on seeing things rightly. Seeing things rightly. The first uh, few verses here uh, deal with evaluations and interactions with people, and evaluations of situations with interpersonal relationships. Then he gives an illustration of a blind person leading a blind person, and relates that to uh, one's teacher, and how you become like those who you follow. And so it has to do, once again, with not being able to see correctly, and the warning of that. And then he ends with a person who can see really clearly a problem in another person's life, but is totally blind or cannot see the massive issue in their own life. And so they're blind to, they can't see. And so all three of these have something to do with seeing rightly. And, you know, the word we might use for this is discernment. Or if you're John MacArthur, discernment, you know, right? Uh, And so it's the idea of making judgments, evaluations. And this is what the Christian life is all about. We are constantly called to be discerning, to evaluate, to consider everything, to test everything uh, according to the touchstone of the scriptures. And so we look at uh, the issue of seeing things rightly. We are looking at the Sermon on the Plain or Sermon on the Mount, And we've been looking at Luke's abbreviated version of it. Matthew gives his in Matthew 5 to 7, and there's certainly lots of parallels. Uh, But we began by looking at the comfort of kingdom citizens in verses 20 to 26. And then last time, the charity or the love of kingdom citizens, verses 27 to 36. And we're going to look this morning at the character of kingdom citizens as they interact with uh, others interpersonally. In verses 37 and following. Uh, so we are going to see the discernment that Christians need to employ. We want to look at three characteristics here of kingdom citizens. The first characteristic is uh, that kingdom citizens are characterized by gracious interaction with others. Kingdom citizens are characterized by gracious interaction with others in verses 37 and 38. If you look at verses 37 and 38, you'll notice there are four commands. Four commands are given, and they can be categorized into two groups. Two negative commands and two positive commands. So two negative, judge not, condemn not. Two positive commands, forgive and give. And then following that, there's a reward. There's a reward to be given. So, What 
are these commands about? Well, let's begin and look at the first one. Judge not, and you will not be judged. This is a command to stop doing something that is presently happening. Now, it is certainly not calling for uh, a cessation of all judgments or um, evaluations, we might say. Uh, That just simply cannot be the case because even in the context, uh, Jesus is going to later say to see clearly your own issues so that you are able to then take the speck out of your brother's eye, which presumably requires you to be able to see that there's a speck and evaluate that. If you actually go to Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 7, just go there for a second and you'll see the parallel. Um, In Matthew 7, it begins, judge not and you will not be judged. Uh, And so then he kind of says some of the same things about the speck in the eye. But then notice what he says in verse 6, same context. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So how do you know that this person is a dog or, uh, or a pig, and therefore you shouldn't throw your pearls before them? You know, whatever that means. Um, you have to make evaluations. You have to make judgments, uh, determinations based upon words, behavior, And so even in the context of just saying judge not, he is telling you to make an evaluation and judge so that you can act appropriately and accordingly. So he's not talking about not having ethical evaluations. Christians are all over the place to be highly discerning. Think of the Bereans. Um, Paul is preaching and he commends them for being discerning. They check everything he says. This is the Apostle Paul and they're making sure it lines up with scripture. They are evaluating, they're judging his teaching. They're testing it according to prior revelation. Is this consistent with what we've heard? That's judging, that's evaluating. The whole sermon that Jesus is giving is very judgmental, (laughs) right? He just put two people in two categories of the blessed and the the woes, uh, those who have God's judgment pronounced upon them for all eternity. And he's saying, hey, if these things characterize you, things that we can all see, then you're blessed. You're in the state of blessed because God has worked that in your life. If you're in these conditions, you have God's judgment upon you. I mean, how is that not incredibly judgy, as we might say? (laughs) It is. Jesus is making evaluations. Jesus judged the Pharisees and the scribes all the time. In fact, Luke 11, Luke 11, verse 42, Jesus says to them, But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seed in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. The Pharisee says, Jesus, judge not, lest you be, (laughs) you could imagine, Jesus, you said not to do it, but he's clearly evaluating them in in chapter 20 of Luke, chapter 20, verse 46. 
He says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the best and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. In John 7, verse 24, Jesus says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. He's not saying you can't look at what you see on the outside and put things together. What I think he's saying is, don't just take a surface level approach to this. Uh, Make sure you you have the facts. Um, But part of that is seeing the external as well as what people are saying. So don't make a superficial judgment, but with right judgment. So here he's commanding us to judge. So what what gives? What's happening here? Well, let's keep on uh, digging this hole further. Uh, This is not a command against uh, law courts, judging, right? Could you be a a judge as as a Christian? Of course you could. You wouldn't be violating this command here. What about church discipline or church restoration? Well, that's certainly not what Jesus is talking about here. In fact, in Matthew 18, Jesus is going to say, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. That certainly involves judging and evaluating. And he says, if he repents, you've won your brother. Praise God. Or listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5. This is really instructive for us on, on this issue. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, in your church that is, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. I think what he's saying is, you guys aren't doing anything about this. And you're so arrogant, you're like, they're probably going like, well, we just, we just love this guy. So we're not going to do anything. And he's like, that's arrogant. Verse three, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Paul, what? <laughs> Verse four, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, so when your church gathers, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the, pl- of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. In other words, they're saying, I'm a Christian. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, he's like unrepentantly in this lifestyle, not even to eat with such a one. 
Then he says this, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So, so Paul clearly uh, believes that it is important for the health of the church, this leaven idea, it would, like the, sin, the leaven of sin, if you just let it go and just say, oh, well, we're just going to not talk about that. He says, that's going to permeate the church. It's going to destroy the church. And so he says, you have to deal with this in the way that Jesus has outlined. And so he's, he's really calling them back to that standard. And he's saying, look, we, we can all see what's happening here. Here's the process you need to go through. And he's saying, hey, listen, we, of course, as believers, we are evaluating uh, these things and holding ourselves to a standard that Jesus has given to us and holding each other to that standard. And so, of course, this is not about uh, church, church discipline issues. Uh, what is it about? What, what kind of judgment is this about? So he's not talking about any moral evaluations, but he's talking about something. He's talking about a specific kind of judgment, a judgment born out of self-righteousness. And I think this is clear when you, when you pair it with the second command. Judge not, and you will not be con- uh, judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. A condemning refers to like the carrying out of the sentence. It's like putting yourself in the place of the judge. I- I'm the one who determines guilt and then acting accordingly. One writer says this, what this command does forbid is harsh, critical, compassionless, vengeful condemnation of one's enemies as if one was vested with final judgment power. Another person writes, the idea is rather a judgmental and censorious perspective toward others that holds them down in guilt and never seeks to encourage them toward God. What is commanded is an attitude that is hesitant to condemn and quick to forgive. What is prohibited is an arrogance that reacts with hostility to worldly and the worldly and morally lacks, viewing such people as beyond God's reach. I, this is the kind of attitude I think condemned in the Pharisee in Luke 18 that we'll get to, you know, eventually. And, uh, and where, where he gets into, he starts praying and he looks across the way and he sees this tax collector and he says, oh Lord, so thankful. I'm not like that guy. <laughs> I, I do all these righteous things. And, and what is he doing? He's making an evaluation of this guy who he probably doesn't even know uh, or know that well. And he, he's, he's just saying, he, he's having this censorious judgment against him as he self-righteously uh, evaluates this man. Uh, we see the same when in the prior chapter, in, in Luke chapter 5, they were judging Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners in Matthew's house. How could he do that? You know, and, and they're judging him in their hearts. Uh, later, in the next chapter, in chapter 7, uh, one of the Pharisees is going to invite Jesus over for dinner, Simon. And also, a sinful woman is going to come, and she's going to um, anoint his feet with this incredible expensive ointment and weep at his feet and, and wipe his feet with her hair. And the response of the Pharisee when he sees this happening in verse 39, it's in chapter 7, it says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, so he's just kind of reasoning inside, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is and who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And then Jesus begins to address him. 
We might say that the opposite of this kind of judging that Jesus is forbidding is to believe the best about a person, uh, to give them the benefit of the doubt, to not keep a record of wrongs, or not to judge the motives of other people if we, when we don't know them. I, I think the flip side of this is in 1 Corinthians 13 about love, where Paul enumerates what love looks like. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable, resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The person who loves looks at another person and they're not knee-jerk reaction of condemning this, this person. They, they want to believe the best about them. They want to give them the benefit of the doubt. They also don't rejoice in this person's downfall and coming condemnation, but they rejoice with the truth. They, they have a heart for this person. And that's why we say they have a gracious attitude towards others. That's what Jesus is getting at here. And so he's saying, judge not, condemn not. You will not be judged. You will not be condemned. This is the attitude believers have. Why would, they, why would Christians be characterized by this? Well, look at verse 35, right? Just before our section. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. So we've been shown great mercy. We've been forgiven much. And so we know what we deserve. We know the way we've acted. And so as we interact with other people who we have some kind of conflict with, we see their life, we are much more gracious and quick to see the best, not quick to condemn. Though we do make evaluations, of course. There's not this self-righteous judgment because we've come to see and, and we increasingly come to see that we're so shot through with sin. <laughs> we so need God's grace that we then start to treat others in the way that we have been treated as well. And this then leads to the positive commands of forgiving and giving. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. What is forgiveness? What are we talking about? When, or what are we doing when we forgive someone? Uh, it's, it's good to think about forgiveness uh, not as a feeling, but as a promise or a commitment that you're making to someone. Um, you know, you'll hear all the time, you know, I can forgive you, but I can nev I'll never forget, right? <laughs> You've actually not forgiven them then. I mean, that's just simply the reality of it. Uh, because one of the promises of forgiveness is that you're going to fight to not dwell upon this. So this is important because forgiveness is not something you must wait to have the feelings for before you do it. Jesus is not commanding you to have all these feelings come so that then you can grant someone forgiveness. Oh, I don't feel like it yet. No, now it's important and we should pray that the Lord would give us that, that heart as well. But it's a commitment that you're making to another person who has wronged you in some way. And, and really the idea, the basic idea of the word is to release. It's to release someone of something. And, it, and it, it's, an, it's a commitment, it's a promise. What are you promising to this other person who, who's sought forgiveness? 
These are not original to me, but very helpful, very instructive for us to think about just practical Christian living. We got to just nail these things. These got to be like second nature to us because, I mean, I don't know about you, but forgiveness is kind of like a common thing. It's like bread and butter. Uh, we got to do this. We got to repent regularly. We got to ask forgiveness regularly. We got to grant forgiveness regularly. If, if you're living with other people, what are you committing to do? Number one, you're committing to not bring this up to the person, to use it against them. I'm committing now, as I forgive you, not to bring this up again to your detriment, to use against you. What you're doing is you're emptying your pockets of any, like, weapon. So, So this means, like, later on, you can't come back and say, oh, you always do this, you know, and you're trying to, you know, get some leverage for your position. Wait, I thought you forgave me for that. Now, that's obviously not the same as just recognizing, you know, patterns and things like that uh, in a person's life and trying to help them. This is why we say to use against them. We know what that's like when you've kind of, okay, I know, I know what you did, and I'm going to use it when it's convenient to me. So you're committing not to do that. You're also committing not to bring this up to other people for your harm, for their harm. So it doesn't mean you say like, yeah, I forgive you, um, and then you go tell everyone what they did to you hey, pray for this person because they just did this to me. I forgave them, of course, because I'm, you know, so spiritual, you know, but I just want you to pray for them so they don't do it again. You know, it's like, no, you are committing to guard their reputation, right? It's really sad when people don't even know it sometimes that they're doing it and they start talking to you and they just start saying all these stuff about other people that they ought not to be saying. I'm like, oh, okay. wonder what you say about me <laughs> when I'm not around. And, um, it just breaks your heart. You're committing not to bring this up to others for their harm. Now, another thing that you're committing to is not to dwell upon this, to not to dwell upon this, but rather you think of like Philippians 4a, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's lovely, whatever's of good repute, you think about these things. And, and, and I'm not saying that, or like Psalm 103, where there's the idea of God casts our, our sins into the depths of the sea. And um, now, of course, God is omniscient, but what is he saying? He's not going to use them against us. He's not going to bring them up against us again. And so what, what we, this is the hardest part, I think, of forgiveness, where we are seeking to consciously fight against dwelling upon this so as to cause bitterness and rerun uh, or replay the episode in our mind. And so, of course, practically, you are going to think about it. It is going to come into your mind. But what do you do when it comes into your mind? Do you just kind of sit there and nurse it and feed it? Just kind of roll it over uh, like a lifesaver on your tongue and just kind of, just think about this, you know, it's like, oh yeah, there. so, you know, or do you pray for that person in that moment and do you pray for the Lord to help you honor the commitment that you've made? Not committing, committing not to dwell upon this. And of course, I mean, just, there's not enough time to make all the caveats we need to make about just sometimes the length of time it's going to take to, to really get over something and to really make progress. Um, you know, in other words, like, let, let's, let's be sure we know the situation uh, that we're addressing and our compassion is we're helping someone grant forgiveness. Like, if you're speaking to Corey Tenboom and you're just like, hey, you need to forgive them right now. You know, it's like, okay, there's a little bit more uh, tact and grace with that as you walk through that. And it may be somewhat of a process to help them to get to that place. Um, but... Um, so yeah, just with all those caveats in place, but we're committing not to dwell upon this. Also, uh, I commit to not let this stand between our relationship. 
And this is an important one, I think, to, to add on because the goal here is restoration. Uh, and I, I heard um, one biblical counselor recently make a, a, a helpful point. He says, the goal is to bring the relationship back to what it was before this conflict. It's not necessarily going to advance it light years ahead into the future. So like if you weren't like best friends uh, before this issue and forgiveness is granted, then it's, it's not like reasonable to expect that you guys are going to be like hanging out every day now. Like, no, it's, it, the goal is to restore the relationship to what it was before. And, um, and of course, I think it will draw you closer to some degree because there's this exchange that happens and it actually, some of our closest relationships are those that we've had some kind of conflict and we've had to work through this and we've granted uh, forgiveness or sought forgiveness and it just tightens the relationship as Christians. So this is what we're committing to for one another when we uh, forgive another person. And this is so important for seeing restoration and seeing good relationships and good conflict resolution. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 32. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And so we are to act like our father. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here, as we're merciful like the father is merciful. Um, one other place that's just such a powerful illustration of forgiveness. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells this, this parable to make this point about how Christians should be most able to forgive because of the forgiveness that they've received from God. Like, we've received such a lavish forgiveness. Of course we should be able to forgive other people who've sinned against us. He says this in Matthew 18, 21. And Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. So you understand, like, these are just insanely different amounts, right? It's like, this guy owes him like $10 billion, and the other guy owes him like 10 grand. And uh, it's like the 10 million forgiven, you know, and it's like, and he's like, I don't know, get this 10 grand. And, uh, and it says he seized him and he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will repay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should, not, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So here's what Jesus holds out later. So we're to forgive. And then along with that, we're to give. 
or to give. A Christian who's merciful, who's gracious, meets the needs of others. Even those who had once been their enemies. Christians are full of generosity. We're like the father who lavishes gifts on those who don't deserve it. We looked at last time, Matthew, the comparison where he says, you know, he causes his son to shine on the just and the unjust. He sends rain upon them. And they don't, there's enemies. They don't deserve this. And yet God shows this graciousness. He just has this disposition of giving those who don't deserve it. And so obeying these four commands is how we imitate God's graciousness, his mercy towards us. And then notice the reward in verse 38. He says, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, I love this. This is like such a great picture. It's kind of lost on us in some ways because of the culture difference. But when you went to the market and they would, you know, fill up, just think, here's what I thought about. Uh, When you buy a bag of potato chips, um, if you're really healthy, then maybe you don't understand this, but, but if you buy a bag of potato chips and you open them, right, they're like half full, right? And it's like, all this air comes out at you and they fill it half with air. And so it's not all the way full. This is like the opposite of that. This is like you go to the market for potato chips and uh, I don't know if it would work with potato chips, but they, they like pour it in and then they like smash it all down. So they're all, you, you don't want your potato chips like that. But if they were to smash them, you could fit more in there. And then you like sift it a little bit like this and it drops down some more. And then you, or maybe another way to think about it, it's like in the fall when you have leaves and you're packing them into the bag, right? You don't just like put them in there and then like tie it up. You use like a, th- you know, you go like, and you push the air down, you know, and then you, you get more leaves in there, and then finally you, they're like bursting, and that's the idea that Jesus is saying here. This is how God will reward you. He's going to pack it down. But then it's also interesting because he says, with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So there's some sense of like, hey, it's going to be just pouring over, running over for you. You can't put anything more in this. And yet, it, there's something to do with the measure that you have used. So use a big measure for, for those. God is going to use a big measure for you. Use a little measure. Okay, God uses a little measure. You, you decide. You decide the measure. Yeah, what, a, what a wonderful picture. Um, I like this uh, I like the illustration that many have used throughout church history of God's rewards for believers. And, and yes, there's differences between them, but there's also a fullness to everyone's experience. And they use this illustration of like cups. And maybe they get it from this passage, I don't know. But it's this idea of like, when you're in heaven, everyone's cup is full. Everyone's like, you know, filled up to the max. It's like, if you had a cup and it was overflowing, you, you couldn't put anything more in. There's a fullness to it. Everyone's experience is like that. But... Some have more reward than others. And, or you might put it like this. Some have bigger cups than others. A greater capacity for more of God, more joy in God. And not only that, but our capacity expands over time because our knowledge of God expands over time. So it's like God increases the size of the cup. So you have like a little tiny cup to then you have like the, you know, 7-Eleven, you know, jumbo size, whatever, you know. Uh, they don't even have 7-Eleven here. But, um, but the idea is like it just gets bigger and bigger and it's, fu- it's always full but the size is getting bigger. And so that's this idea of like overflowing and yet with the measure that you use. And so God is just gonna pour it out upon you, lavish upon you. Listen to what he says in Luke 18, verse 29. Luke 18, 29. Because Peter says, see, we have, left ha- our, we have left our homes and followed you. Luke 18, 29, and he said to them, truly I say to you, 
There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this, in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Hey, both now and in eternity, God is going to reward you. He's going to pay you back for those things you've sacrificed very tangibly. So this is the reward. This is the motivation for our graciousness. It's the graciousness of God. So kingdom citizens are characterized by gracious interaction with others. This is how we are. This is what God continues to work into our lives. Secondly, kingdom citizens are characterized by their guarded intake of instruction. Their guarded intake of instruction. And this is in verses 39 and 40. Here's where discernment really comes in. He says, he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? My disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. This, is, uh, this idea of a parable is more like just a simple illustration or proverbial statement. Everyone can get this. Very simple. <laughs> Think about like, if you go to the Grand Canyon and you're gonna go get a tour guide to take you down, you know, these winding things to go down into the canyon. If someone shows up blind with a, with a walking stick, they, you're, that's not the person you want to lead you. That's the illustration Jesus gives. He's saying, you don't want to follow someone who's blind because you're liable to both fall into a pit. And, and the word he uses for a pit is not like a little tiny, like twist your ankle. It's a massive pit that you would fall into and be seriously harmed. And so it's just so simple. It's so easy to get. And likely the idea is this blindness is maybe twofold. The idea he's going to get to in the next illustration is someone who has a massive plank in their eye and they can't see it. <laughs> they are blind to the massive issue in their life. And so there's no doubt there's a connection there. But why would that be uh, in some cases? Well, it could be, it, what he's talking about here is that there's a, there's a spiritual blindness. There's just an inability to see things as they are. And it may be that he's likely speaking about religious leaders who are leading people astray. They are blind themselves, and yet they're telling people how they ought to live and how they should um, relate to God, and yet they know nothing at all. I think you see this in, in two places in particular. Um, some people have a problem seeing that because they, they well, Jesus, isn't, he doesn't mention Pharisees in this context, but I think when you compare it to Sermon on the Mount, it's very clear he's, he's addressing the, uh, or in Matthew's account, he's addressing the religious leaders here. And listen to what he says later in Matthew 15. Uh, he, he begins by talking about the traditions of the elders. He says, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And of course, he gives them this illustration of what they're doing. And then verse 10, he says, And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And then disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? <laughs> you hurt their feelings, Jesus. He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. 
And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. And Peter asked for some explanation further on that. So here he's, he's clearly connecting these two, these religious leaders, those who they claim to have spiritual insight to know the way, and yet they have no idea, no idea where they're directing people. Paul says the same thing virtually in Romans 2, verse 17. He says this, Romans 2, 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Well, you preach against stealing. Do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Both Paul and Jesus seem to make the same connection that these blind guides are religious leaders who are like, we know the law, we know what God says, follow us. And isn't it so like bad teachers, bad false teachers who they want to instruct people on the minutia of life and direct people's lives and all the details and, and tell them what to do and how to live. And yet they're not doing it themselves. They're not living it out themselves. And so he calls them hypocrites later. And so he's saying, hey, be, he, I think he's just warning, be careful who you follow. Careful who you follow. You need to be discerning in those whom you listen to. And I think there's an implicit warning here. Hey, you should be careful before you start to instruct others. Doesn't mean you shouldn't, but you better be sure that you are not telling people to do things that you yourself are not doing. You need to be humble in that. It's like James 3, you know, not many of you should be teachers for there comes a stricter judgment. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. And Jesus often uses this referring to himself and it's also kind of a proverbial statement uh, that you become like the one you sit under, you become like your teacher you, and when you're fully trained, you're like just like them. And there's a sense in which you can't rise above the one teaching you in some degree uh, and especially in this time, in this context, and so he's like, if, if the, I think there's maybe two things going on here. There's the idea of if you are following a teacher who's blind and you're fully trained, that's not going to be good. You're going to be just like them. You're not going to rise above them. If they don't know the way to heaven, what hope do you have if you're following them? But, but then Jesus often uses this of himself. And the idea is as we follow Jesus, we, when we're fully trained, we, we become more and more like Jesus. And of course, the idea is, hey, be careful who you follow and who should you follow? You should follow Jesus. And he's gonna actually say, you should build your house upon the rock. And he's gonna say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you? He is to be the teacher we follow. And any teacher that's good is going to point people to the truth about Christ. And so he, he's calling them to be discerning. The disciples are guarded about the intake of instruction. They're careful about who they follow. They want to follow Christ. They want to follow his teaching and be conformed to him. And they're discerning in that way. And finally, the last section here, the kingdom citizens are characterized by getting the log out of their eye. Kingdom citizens are characterized by getting the log out of their eye. You might say before helping others. Look at verse 41. 
Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? I mean, I have to think, as Jesus said this, people started laughing in the congregation, in the audience. I mean, this is hilarious. This is funny. I mean, just leave it to a carpenter to come up with an illustration like this. Uh, This is, I mean, it ruins a joke when you have to explain it to someone, but I'm an expositor. I've got to explain it to you. (laughs) So uh, the idea is this speck is like sawdust. It's like you got a piece of sawdust and you're like, oh, God my contact out. You know, sometimes my contact rolls back in my eye and we got to get it. It's really bad. And you're like trying to get your contact out and all this stuff. It's like a piece of sawdust. And he's saying, here you have a person who has sawdust in their eye. Oh yeah. And here's another person who, and the word he uses is, you know, in some houses, like they, they have like the beam above in the, the, the lofted ceiling and there's the beam that's holding a lot of the weight up or uh, maybe like a floor joist that's like you know, all, all, everything else is connected. I don't know what I'm talking about. Everything else is connected to. Um, it's the big beam, you know. Um, stick to preaching, Robert. Um, and, uh, or think of a telephone pole or the mast on a ship. I mean, that's the idea that Jesus is talking about. He's, he's just over the top extreme. Here's a person with a telephone pole sticking out of their eye. And they're trying to carefully help them. And just notice how delicate this procedure is, right? When you get something in your eye, you're like, oh, no, 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 don't touch it. Sometimes our kids, like, something happens and we're trying to help them. They're like, no, don't do it, don't touch it. And uh, Henry, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, um, so, um, but the point is, this is very delicate. It, you know, if you don't want a doctor who has to do very delicate surgery and you meet him and he's like this the whole time, <laughs> shaking his hands, hey, well, it's nice to meet you. And we're like, well, no, I don't think you are going to do this surgery. And that's this idea. It's so extreme. Now, what, what's more, more humorous about this is, look at what he says. Why do you see, remember we're talking about ability to see. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? So they are aware. They can see a problem, a speck, a sawdust. in their brother. But then he says this, but you do not notice the log that it's in your own eye. So he's saying there is a blindness to this massive issue in your life. You're blind to that issue, but somehow you see very clearly when it comes to another person and this small speck in their eye. So then, of course, verse 42, he says, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your, in your eye. Everyone's like, oh, they're like dropping down. <laughs> when, you do, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite. This word hypocrite is, it's like a play actor. It's like someone puts on a mask and they, they play a part and then they change it and they play a different part. And, um, and hypocrite is different than just a run-of-the-mill sinner, right? Like Christians sin, we do that, right? Uh, sometimes people are all, hip- Christians are all hypocrites. Well, a hypocrite is someone who, who like denies their sin, right? They're, they sin, but they're like, oh, but you should do this, and I'm not doing that, you know? And it's like, no, you are doing that. Uh, and so he, he's like, you're play acting here. How could you miss that? How could you miss that? He wants them to have greater discernment about themselves, to see their own condition first before they help people. Now, let me, let me give you a, a, a great Old Testament illustration of this, of this problem. 2 Samuel 12, 
This is my, this is my like advertisement for the guys tonight. You know, Second Samuel 12. This is where we left off. We're gonna pick it up and finish Second Samuel. So Second Samuel 12, Nathan has committed adultery with Bathsheba. He's murdered Uriah as well as many other soldiers in the process of covering up his sin. Um, and uh, this is sometime later. Nathan the prophet confronts him. God sends him. Second Samuel, he, he has this really just genius way of confronting David and his sin. And it says in 2 Samuel 12, verse 5, or no, sorry, um, verse 1 actually, the Lord sent, Yahweh sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him, with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As Yahweh lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man, David. That's the idea. It's this kind of massive, massive beam in your eye. And yet David is so upset about this other person. Jesus is saying, hey, you deal with yourself first. Now, the problem is, I think some Christians stop at this point in the passage, and you need to go one step further. Because they think, oh yeah, I just, I, just, I can't say anything to anybody, because I'm a sinner. And that's true. We all are. Um, Jesus is not saying our lives have to be absolutely tied in a bow, perfect, before we can ever help another Christian. Notice how he ends, what he says. In verse 42, you hypocrite, here's the procedure. Here's how you think about it. Here's how you think about helping other Christians. First, step one, first, take the log out of your own eye. Step two, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Jesus, in a context where he says, judge not, tells you to evaluate, if you want to use that term, discern an issue in another brother's life and go to them, help them with their issue. But what, have, what do you have to do first? To deal with your stuff first. You have to be repenting of your own sin first. And this is, think of the genius of this, right? As Jesus set this up, he made it that, number one, we're supposed to help each other live the Christian life. But the way he set it up is that when you see something in another's life that it's not just, it's not a preference thing. It's not like, you know, whatever. Uh, it, it's a clear, defined, biblical in, instruction God has for us, command that someone is not doing. Um, and, and you're going to go to them, but Jesus says, first you have to deal with yourself. And it's incredibly humbling. Like whenever, if you've had to do that before, if you, if you have done that before and tried to help another Christian, it is so sanctifying for you because you're like, Lord, you know, I've sinned like this before, whether it's in thought or word or deed, and, or uh, Lord, if it's not that, it's this, and oh man, I'm, 
I'm so not there, and you're confessing your sin, and you're getting humble before the Lord, and you're just so like tender, and that's exactly the point. Because you don't come in, guns blazing, what are you doing? You, know? <laughs> you come in as one who's been shown grace, and you've repented, and then you say, hey, can we get together? Hey, help me understand. I, here's what I'm seeing, maybe I'm not seeing it right. Here's what the Lord says, Am I, am I getting this? What, what am, I, am I missing any details? Tell me what's going on, brother. You're gracious. You're, you're actually just trying to go on a fact-finding mission and see, like, do I have the facts here right? Maybe I misunderstood something. Maybe I didn't see it rightly. Maybe I don't know the whole story. You know, he who states his case, case first seems right until another comes and examines him. Okay, I want to understand. Help me. And you're just so gracious as you come. And that's the whole point. This whole process, if we're doing this, we get sanctified and they get helped and they get sanctified. But it must start with us. We must start with ourselves and say, Lord, please forgive me. And, and maybe you have to go to people first as you are reconciling, and then you go to them and you help them. Maybe he, says, he doesn't say like, well, you can't help them because you're a sinner, so just let them go. No, he says, no, you've got to deal with yourself, and then, then you can see clearly. You've been humbled, then you can see clearly, and you can go, and delicately. And this is why it's so important. When you think of, just how practical this is, if you ever are going to do this and go to someone it is a delicate procedure, right? Go prepared. No, think about the conversation ahead of time, right? And think, this is delicate. If I'm going to remove something from someone's eyeball, it's just gentle. It's careful, right? It's not harsh. It's not a, an axe that you're coming with, right? Uh, and so think about that. As you come to help another Christian who's struggling in an area, come as if you're taking something out of their eye. You want to help them, and you want to be gracious in that. And listen to what Paul says about this in Galatians chapter 6. In Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Here's how we treat one another. If you see a brother caught or sister caught in their transgression and their sin, you go. If you know, you go. And you seek with the intention of restoring them. I like this. I like this spin on it, right? Some discipline. Discipline is like, you're getting discipline right now. You're, like, you're getting discipline in the word of God. Instructed, right? That's the idea, basic idea, just instruction on the way to go. But there's another kind of corrective discipline. There's formative discipline. That's what's happening now. There's corrective discipline when something in your life is being pointed out to change. But think about it, and the other flip side is restoring, restoring back. And that's what Paul has here. He says, we were to restore them, and we're to do it gently. And that's just in line with that. Let's take that out. Really care. Take that out. It's like the gentleness idea. And so that's how we are to be with one another. So we are, think about it like this, we are to cultivate an I'm the worst sinner in this room mentality, right? I'm the worst sinner in this home. I'm the worst sinner in this relationship. I instead of looking at commands and you see the other person, you go, man, they need to do that. I wish I could just send them this sermon, right? You go, oh man, God has called them to a lot. He's called them to a high standard. I, you know, I need to be gracious with them as I try to help them. And so this is what Christians are like. This is what kingdom citizens are like. We're vigilant about our own sin first, but we also care to help others. We're discerning. We're growing in our discernment. 
One other practical thing, I think, I mean, this is just the bread and butter. This is so practical. This is so good just to go, yeah, this is how interpersonal relationships are at work. We should, we should start in a conflict. I mean, we, well, none of us really like conflict. Um, if you do, come talk to me. You know, <laughs> um, no, uh, but it's good to start and say, how am I contributing to this problem? That's the principle of take the speck out of your eye. Because we're so quick to go, it's all them. It's all them. It's 99.9% and a half them. <laughs> but you still say, how am I contributing to this problem? If you're not willing to look into your heart about that, you're not ready to go to them. How am I contributing to this problem? And to, I mean, and that is going to, for lack of wood, the fire goes out, right? <laughs> for lack of quarreling, the conflict ends. And so if you, if you stop putting logs on the fire of this conflict and you just own your part, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You just say, you just own your part. Man, it is just pours cold water on that fire. So that's what Christians are like. That's what Christians are like. We're gracious. We're guarded in who we follow. We want to follow the Lord Jesus. And we get the log out of our own eyes so that we can help other people. And in all this, we model God's character in that. Lord's so good to us. He gives us such helpful instruction. And there is so much forgiveness when we sin and when we fail and we blow it. And God is so quick to forgive. And that's why we should be quick to forgive as well. Well, Let's pray. Father, thank you for this instructive passage as Jesus helps us to know how to live before others and interact in daily life. This is so practical for us and help us to implement these things. Lord, if you've placed things on our people in our mind that we need to grant forgiveness to or seek forgiveness from, help us to have courage to do that. Help us to think through that process and help us to be a congregation that truly cares for one another and who really wants reconciliation where it's needed and who strives to help one another to live the Christian life. We thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us, your grace that is the, the, the model for us. Encourage us now as we go this week to live out these principles of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, let us respond. As we continue to trust in Jesus, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. One seven.